All right, good. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us. My name is Dave Everett. This is my wife, Sherry Everett, Lighthouse Discipleship Center. Sorry, we just had a hiccup with our, our live streaming tonight. Uh, so we are just live streaming on Facebook. We'll get it uploaded to YouTube and all of our other devices later. So we won't be live streaming directly to YouTube tonight or our website. So apologize for that. Uh, by the time some of you see this, it will already be a recorded message. Uh, but uh, we're doing a li uh, live stream on Bible study on the true nature of God by Andrew Womack. And we're actually in uh, chapter 1 tonight uh, as we continue and, uh, our, with our Bible study. And anyway, uh, again, I apologize. We've had some hiccups with this new live streaming uh, rollout. And, uh, and the major problem is the camera, I mean, the, the mic on our, our uh, iPad isn't working. When that doesn't work, it kicks everything off. So everything's dialed in to work, but it's just uh, the microphone's not working for whatever. It's a brand new iPad, um, so I'm not sure we're going to have to figure that out. So anyway, thank you for your patience. Well, we're doing the, the Bible study in the true nature of God by Andrew Womack. We're in chapter 1 tonight. And, uh, um, okay, let me turn everything off. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, the title of this chapter is called it God Schizophrenic? Schizophrenic. Schizophrenic. Okay, thank you. I always have a hard time with that word. God is not schizophrenic. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, you keep laughing at me, uh, but I, I know I can't get that word down. Uh, so we're going to be comparing tonight between the Old and New Testament. And comparing, we're talking about the nature of God. And we're talking about the true nature of God. We're going to be comparing uh, some uh, Old Testament verses versus the New Testament and getting a proper balance here of the true nature of God. That's the goal anyway. So without further ado, uh, Sherry's going to be uh, interpreting, I mean, narrating tonight. <laughs> and then uh, how, uh, we'll be talking about it as we go. So she's going to be this first section that's called The Old Testament is Incomplete. And so... The word of God does not contradict itself. There is a perfect harmony to it all. Much of what is in this book purposes to harmonize the Old and New Testaments to reach a better, more complete understanding of the nature of God. In the Old Testament, we see a picture of God that is incomplete. It is not incorrect. It's just incomplete. People who create their understanding of the nature of God based only on the Old Testament usually don't end up with a fully accurate picture. The Old Testament is only a partial picture, is not a perfect representation of God. Unless we understand the New Testament and are able to harm harmonize it with the Old Testament, we are going to end up misunderstanding the love and the whole nature of God. One night, I had a dream that I was Joshua in the Old Testament. I was going into the Promised Land, and God had commanded me to kill everybody in all of the cities, just like he commanded Joshua. That was hard for me to do. No women, children, or anything that could breathe was to be left alive. But I couldn't justify it. I was nearly to the point of saying, God, I just can't do it. To make the situation worse, I discovered that one of my very best friends was in one of these cities, and I was supposed to kill him, his wife, and his kids. I woke up from the dream thinking, God, I can't do it. God, there's no way I can do it. I thought about the dream all morning, meditating on it and praying about it. I was thinking, God, how could these things have happened? 
My answer was found by looking at the Old Testament through the revelation of the New Testament. God began to show me that if Jesus had lived in his human form in the Old Testament, he would not have done things the way Joshua did. That is not to say that Joshua was wrong. He was obedient to God, and during that time period, God was operating in the manner that he had to. Still, all that God did through Joshua was not a true and complete representation of his nature, nor was it whom God had revealed himself to be in the New Testament. And yet, some people have the impression that God is a God of wrath who will wipe out anyone who gets in his way. Wanting to be great men or women of God, many Christians go back and begin to emulate some of the Old Testament examples. Anytime someone is told they're a prophet or that they have the anointing of a prophet, that person begins to get hard and cruel. They think they're acting like Elijah, an old bony-fingered prophet who would get right in your face and let you have it. People think of Elijah as someone who would rebuke you, lambast you, starve you out with famine, or burn you out with fire to teach you something. Now, there are some examples of true prophets who were not hard and cruel, but when people think of the typical prophet, they usually have an impression of someone like Elijah. Young believers who think they are prophets believe that they are God's lightning rod in the earth. They are going to attract all of the judgment and wrath of God and smite people if they get out of line. But that's not a total understanding of the ministry of the prophet, and certainly not of God's nature. Under the Old Testament, some things were done in that manner, but that is not the whole nature of God. It is vital to know who it is we are really dealing with. If we don't know God's nature or really understand Him, then we will never effectively walk in the blessings and power of God. I don't care what scriptures we learn or whose teaching we sit under. As I have said before and will say many times throughout this book, we have to come to a place where we really know God and have intimate relationship with Him. Religious ideas arising from a misunderstanding of scripture block people from entering into close relationship with God. Many people were really afraid to come before God because they have been taught or have gotten the impression of him that he is going to hit them with something. So many believers feel they have to bow and scrape and duck every time they come before him. That's not the relationship God desires or what his word teaches. Okay, thank you, Cherry. Uh, we're just barely getting into this again. Thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, we had a little hiccup on our uh, live stream tonight, so we're doing our old-fashioned way. Uh, we're on Facebook Live tonight, and then we'll upload all of our other uh, platforms later. But uh, we're doing the Bible saying the true nature of God. Uh, we're in chapter one. We're under. We're comparing tonight between the Old and New Testament uh, about the nature of God. And so that's, uh, we're doing comparison. We're just barely getting into it. I don't have a lot of comments right here at the very beginning because I feel like my comments would be somewhat incomplete without getting the full uh, thought of Andrew out. But, you know, I don't, I grew up this way, when, especially with the Old Testament. I always saw God, a judgment God. I saw him with wrath. I mean, you see, you see the flood. You see other, other times, with Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, some other times times and uh, some examples of Elijah that he just brings out. We're going to get a little more in detail with that. But uh, I think really the last two paragraphs I have a couple things to say. Uh, let me just read them again. Under the Old Testament some things were done in this manner but that, that is not the whole na nature of God. 
It is, a, it is vital to know who it is we are really doing with. If we don't know God's nature or really understand him, then we'll never effectively walk into blessings and the power of God. Uh, I don't care, and I'm on page four, those who are following in the book. Uh, if, uh, let me read that last sentence again. If we don't know God's nature or really understand him, then we'll never effectively walk into blessings and the power of God. I don't care what scripture we learn or what whose teaching we sit under. As I have said before, and I will say many times throughout this book, we have to come to a place where we really know God and have an intimate relationship with him. And that's a key point that we keep making in all of our Bible studies, all of our teachings. Everything stems from a, nature, from a relationship with God. You, know, you can't get to know anybody unless you have a relationship with them. You can hear about them. You might know things. Uh, someone that you just have an acquaintance with, you really don't know them. Until you build a relationship with them, you really can't make any judgment on on, on, on their character or their nature. Uh, uh, I mean, I know there's some exceptions to that. But, uh, uh, but, uh, but um, you know, you just really can't know someone's, you know a tree by its fruit. But until you really get to know someone, you know, there's some people I thought, you know, they were just mean, but then I got to know them. They were actually pretty nice. Now, I'm not saying they need to work on some things to, 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 to uh, but then or maybe they were just quiet. And because they were quiet, I just thought they were selfish to themselves. And when, when they got to know them, they opened up like a flower and they were just beautiful. They just needed, to, they just needed a little encouragement to, 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 to and they just needed, really, they just needed someone to befriend them so they could come out of that shell. And, uh, and be uh, who they already are. And, uh, and there's some people, uh, they were, they, they, they seem, on the surface, they seem like they were a really nice person, but once you got to know them, they were just rude and disrespectful, and, and I didn't really get, I didn't really like them. But uh, it's just, uh, you know, until you get to know somebody, you, you really don't know them. And, and the key thing for everything, and one of the key factors that we try to teach in all of our Bible studies and teachings is have a relationship with God. And having a relationship with God is not just going to church on Sunday or Bible study. That's a good place. I mean, the world doesn't do that. Uh, there's a lot of people who don't even do that. So that's a good place. Something is better than nothing. But at the same point in time, if you, you're going to, and this goes with every relationship, you're going to get out of the relationship what you put into it. You know, if I only, <clears throat> if, uh, let me reverse it, let me put me on the negative side. If Sherry gave and gave and gave into our relationship, but I never participated, she can't get, I mean, it's not, it's not going to be uh, that rewarding. It's not going to be, It's you know, there is no such thing as a one-sided relationship. There's just no relationship. It's got to be two-sided. It, it, you have to work on it. If all we did was exchange vows and never had a relationship, that's no marriage. That's no relationship. Uh, it's just, in one sense, it's just a piece of paper. Uh, you know, uh, I know it's more than that, but at the same point in time, you know, we want a relationship. Uh, and so, and I know we have different kinds of relationship. We have different levels of relationship. Jesus had the, the multitudes. He had the 70. He had the 12. He had the three. He had the one. And so every, every level of relationship is different. My relationship with my wife is going to be a different relationship than any of you. Uh, and, and, and our other friends and my parents and, and our immediate family and different things. There are going to be different levels of relationships. There are employer-employee relationships. There's, 
those business relationships. But, uh, you know, uh, the, the, relation, the jobs that I liked the more, there was some type of relationship there. Uh, uh, you know, we might not have been best friends or our buddies, uh, but at least it was a, a, a better connection. Uh, I'm just trying to paint a picture on my natural level that and we, we need to get to know God. And just knowing the God of the Old Testament without knowing the revelation of Jesus and knowing God in the New Testament, your revelation of God is going to be mis more likely misconstrued. Uh, we need to see the Old Testament is a shadow. You know, whenever I think of shadow, think of the, the story of Peter Pan. Peter Pan and his shadow. You know, the, sh the shadow is not Peter Pan. It's just a shadow. It moves like Peter Pan. No, Peter Pan, that shadow had a mind of its own. But normally my shadow follows me. It, it, it's a silhouette of who I am in many ways. But it's not me. It doesn't, it's not full color. It's black and white. And, you know, it's just a, uh, my, my shadow doesn't have royal, all the features. You can't see all the, the detail of, of, of something that you can see in real life. A shadow is just a shadow. It's a shadow. But it's a, and in the Old Testament, it's a foreshadow of the New Testament. Christ is the real deal. And we'll all point to Christ uh, about the nature of God. Now, there are some reasons, and we're going to get into that, why God had to act the way he did in the Old Testament. But they were under a different covenant. They were under a different, it's called the Old Covenant. The, the, the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 10, deal with this more specifically. We're not going to go there tonight, but... Uh, uh, Hebrews 8 talks about we have a better covenant. We have a new covenant. Uh, and, and, you know, and the new, and don't, let me just say this. The covenant didn't start at Matthew chapter 1. We, we see the Old Testament, uh, Genesis through Malachi, and, and New Testament as Matthew through Revelation. But the covenant didn't take place until the cross. That's when the new covenant started. You can't have, without, without blood, without a, uh, a death, uh, like that, you you can't you can't have a covenant uh, like that, and so it's a, it's a blood covenant, and so it's a um, and Jesus instituted the new covenant with his blood and whatnot, and we'll get into some of that a little bit later, but um, but uh, so uh, let me just read this last paragraph again real quick. Religious ideas arising from a misunderstanding of God of Scripture block people from entering into close relationship with God. Many are really afraid to come before God because they have been taught or have gotten the impression that he is going to hit them with something. So many believers have, feel they have to bow and scrape and duck every time they come before God. That's not the relationship God desires or that his word teaches. And uh, I might not have been that severe, but I, I some of that relates to just me growing up, and you know, I I didn't know how to approach God. I didn't. I was a, in one sense, I and to a certain degree, I was afraid of God. Uh, you know, uh, I know some people more severe than others. I don't feel mine was very severe, but at the same point in time, and to a certain level, I was afraid of God. You know, uh, and and, uh, and so I and I didn't know how to approach Him, and I I, I did feel like He was far away, and I uh, and I did feel like. You know, if I didn't have my, my act together, that he would judge me or, or even strike me down somehow. I couldn't put all that in words, per se, uh, especially as a child. But uh, but it's, I didn't see him as a very approachable God as I do now. And uh, that's because I didn't get to know him. 
And I don't know where I got all those perceptions. I have imagined it was from to some teaching and some some things I saw or heard or whatnot. I don't know what it is. I I can't pinpoint it. But um, but I but that but the fact of the matter was that to a certain level that was my representation of God. And if that if if you're afraid of something, you're not going to develop a relationship with that. I mean, if it's a parent, an employer, a, a, some authority figure, or or even a friend, and you, but you're afraid of them, you're not going to pursue a relationship with that. I mean, you're going to go the other direction. You're gonna you're gonna refrain any contact with that person as much as possible. So if you're afraid of God, you're not going to pursue and embrace a relationship with Him. That's backwards. See how see how backwards that is. If, no one is going to in the right mind is going to out of their free will and out of a desire and joy pursue a relationship with someone they're afraid of. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I mean, I, I get people might do it out of respect, but in one sense, if all, you, <coughs> if all of your respect is to, that you're afraid of someone, I understand there's a fear of the Lord, but a lot of people don't understand the fear of the Lord. I, I taught on that earlier this year. I, I had a teaching on walking in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is trusting God. The trust in the Lord is reverencing Him, trusting Him, relying on Him. Um, that's what the fear of the Lord is in the simplest form. It, it's, it's, it's reverencing Him. It's not being afraid of Him. There's a different connotation uh, that most people don't understand. And we need to walk in the fear of the Lord. In one sense, we need to fear God more than we fear man. Uh, we have to have a respect for God more than we respect man. We need to obey God more than we obey man. And, you know, uh, and, and then to a certain level, parent, children should fear their children. I mean, parent, children should fear, fear their parents. Not in a, in a sense of child abuse. I'm not talking about that. But there should be a reverence. There should be respect. There should be a respect for law enforcement and, and the office of certain government. I understand some... Some uh, political, I'm not going to get into politics, but some, some, some people have abused their power and, and whatnot. And so you might not respect the person, but you definitely respect the office of the person. And we've lost a lot of that in our, in our culture uh, and even around the world. Uh, you know, but, uh, and and, we, and we've lost it because we lost it towards God or some of us have never had it. Anyway, I'm not talking about the fear of the Lord tonight. We're talking about the nature of God. But a lot of people have a misconstrued they, they have no relationship with God because they're afraid of Him. They don't know Him. And so, so we, you know, we need to break that barrier so we get to know God and have a relationship. Now, we, get, we, we definitely obey Him. We definitely hearken to His Word. He is our Lord. He, he is our King. Hail the King, you know. Uh, but He is a loving Father, too. You know, up till the New Testament, up till Jesus, the, the Jews never saw God as their Father. They, that was a whole new concept Jesus brought out in the New Testament. Uh, was about the, the Heavenly Father. Now, in, uh, we see this in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, how, uh, our Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. I forget exactly how it goes. Sorry. Um, uh, but, uh, you know. Um, and so there, there needs to be respect. But not a fear. God wants us to be able to walk with him as Adam did before the, the, the fall. Adam have a close relationship with God. That's how I want to be with God. And yes, a respect. Yes, an honor. Because I can trust him. He's my God. He's my king. He's my Lord. He's my father. But he's also, I want to have a friendship with him as Abraham had. And uh, uh, anyway.
Uh, we're going to get a little deeper in this and explain a little bit more. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I I know this is the beginning of the book, so don't don't uh, turn it off before you find out more. But, you know, as a child, I was either taught or got the impression uh, to love the Word of God. And so when I was given a, a, a Bible, I thought that was the best gift ever, and I would read it. So I know the Old Testament stories, but I also knew the New Testament because, you know, I, I liked to, to read and I read them and we had a Bible story book that I would read forwards and backwards and, and yet growing up, I could never reconcile what I saw as the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament, especially the verses, God is the same yesterday, today and forever and that Jesus did nothing that he didn't see the Father do. And I saw Jesus as gentle, as merciful, as gracious. And when I saw some of what seemed to be wrath in the Old Testament, you know, it was, it was hard to understand the two. But when I truly understood, uh, there's always more to learn about God, but up to this point, when I truly began to understand who God really is, that he is a God of love, that he is the same yesterday and today and forever. And I started to see Jesus in the old, in the New Testament foreshadowed in the old. And I saw the cross and I saw the prophecies and different things regarding Jesus in the Old Testament. Then, then I was able to reconcile the two together and see God's true nature. You know, in the Old Testament, Jesus hadn't come yet and so God did speak through the prophets you know Hebrews chapter 1 says God who at various times and in various ways spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the worlds God again God spoke to us through his prophets in the Old Testament it was a foreshadow of what was to come. But when Jesus came, Jesus who is God manifested in the flesh, God spoke to us through his son. And when the, the disciples asked Jesus to show us the father, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So when we get to know Jesus and who he is and find out our true identity in Christ, we will definitely, in our relationship with God, find out who He truly is. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, there's some more things to be said, but I think it will come out a little bit later, too. Let's go ahead and read the next section. It's a little long. Uh, so, there's a couple pages here in this book. But we're talking about, again, the Old Testament, and we're going to compare it with the New Testament. So. And, and just to, to just put throw in something, Andrew, who wrote the book, Dave and I, are not putting down the Old Testament. No. All we're saying is to get a true picture of who God truly is, we need to understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament is amazing, and we will learn so much about God and about Jesus and the cross in the Old Testament. But, like wearing glasses, we need to have the right lens to see the true nature of God. So, Old Testament judgment. Ahab and Jezebel are probably two of the most wicked people in history and certainly the most corrupt king and queen of Israel. 
1 Kings 21 verses 1 through 24 tells the story of how they conspired together to kill an innocent man named Naboth in order to acquire his vineyard. They had Naboth stoned to death and his body thrown into a field where the dogs came and licked up his blood. While Ahab was walking through his new vineyard, he saw Elijah the prophet. And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered, I have found thee, because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. 1 Kings 21.20 20. Elijah rebuked Ahab and said, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. 1 Kings 21.19-23 and 23. It took a while for these prophecies to come to pass. Ahab was killed in a battle, and when he was brought home, the people washed out his chariot. As they did, the dogs came and licked up Ahab's blood. 1 Kings 22:38. As for Jezebel, when a man named Jehu became king, she was thrown out of a tower and landed on the ground by the wall. Jehu rode his chariot over her, mutilating her body. Then he went into the palace, sat down, and began to eat. Right in the middle of his meal, he said something like, Well, she's a king's daughter, and even though she was a wicked woman, she ought to be buried. Jehu sent some people out to bury her, but all that was left was her head, hands, and feet. The rest of her had been eaten by dogs. 2 Kings 9, 30-37 Elijah's awesome prophecies came to pass exactly the way he had said, so you wouldn't want to mess with Elijah, right? Ahab and Jezebel had sinned against God to such a degree that Elijah had declared the terrible way their lives would end. Ahaziah, their son, had seen those prophecies fulfilled, but he didn't like Elijah any more than his parents had. Ahaziah was following right in the footsteps of his parents. He wasn't seeking the one true God. He was seeking after pagan gods. When he got sick, instead of seeking God and inquiring of him for his healing, Ahaziah sent messengers to Baal, Alzebub, the god of Ekron. According to 2 Kings 1, 3 through 3-8, when Ahaziah's messengers were on their way to inquire of this pagan god, Elijah met them and said, It is not because there is not a god in Israel that you go to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And Elijah departed. When the messengers turned back unto him, he said unto them, Why are ye now turned back? And they said unto him, There came a man up to meet us, and said unto us, Go, turn again unto the king that sent you, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Is it not because there is not a god in Israel that thou sendest to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shall surely die. He said unto them, What manner of man was he which came up to meet you and told you these words? And they answered him, He was a hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. The king knew it was Elijah and was seized with fear, so he sent his armies out to capture him. Then the king sent unto him a captain of fifty with his fifty. He went up, up, and he went up to him, and behold, he sat on the top of a hill. And he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king hath said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, 
If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Second Kings 1, 9 through 10. That's pretty strong, isn't it? You, you just didn't mess with Elijah. Ahaziah sent out an army, 50 men and a captain over them to take Elijah. But Elijah called fire down out of heaven and destroyed the king's men. Again, he also sent unto him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto him, them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy 50. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. 2 Kings 1, 11 and 12. That's 102 men. Somebody might think, well, Satan must have done that. But it says in verse 12 that it was the fire of God that came down from heaven. Elijah had access to the power of God to such a degree that he could consume people. He could kill people with the power and anointing of God. This is similar to Revelation 11:5, where it says the two witnesses will have the power of fire coming out of their mouths, destroying anybody who stands against God. God, in defense of Elijah, released fire from heaven and killed 102 men. Finally, the third captain and his 50 men came, but this captain was a God-fearing man. A paraphrase of what he said is, Have mercy on me. All I'm doing is what the king told me to do. So God told Elijah to go down with him to Ahaziah. God protected Elijah and he wasn't touched by any of the king's men. He didn't have to call fire down out of heaven to strike anybody else. Did you know that's not the only way God, Elijah could have handled the problem? But this is an Old Testament example of the power of the anointing and the wrath of God in defense of one of his prophets. Okay, thank you. Uh, again, I don't have a lot to comment here, uh, but you can see uh, two Old Testament stories, uh, well, actually multiple ones. We have Ahab and Jezebel, and they're very wicked, and, and how it was prophesied about the dog drinking their blood and whatnot. And then we have the, these uh, uh, multiple stories of Elijah, uh, who uh, he was able to call fire down from heaven and consume them. You know, if that's all you read about the Bible, then you 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 might have a perception of God that God is a very wrathful God. <laughs> you know, he. he and, I mean, if we watch a movie like this, we might think that's some type of horror movie, uh, whatever the case may be. You know, uh, there's, there's a reason why God did things in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And there's a reason why I'm doing that. And Sherry mentioned one of the major reasons is Jesus hasn't come yet. <laughs> there's a, that's a major difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that Jesus hasn't come yet. And so, uh, and so we... Uh, be, you know, God was acting under an Old Testament, between Adam's sin and the cross, God was acting under an Old Covenant uh, manner. Uh, and, he, and then after Jesus, until today, he, he ended, we're under a New Covenant. God's not going to pour out his wrath like he did in the Old Testament because he poured out, it says that he poured out all of his wrath on Jesus for us. If he poured out all of his wrath on Jesus for us, then he poured out his wrath on us too, then he is disrespectful to his own son. And that would mean that Jesus accomplished nothing on the cross. And But Jesus did accomplish something at the cross. And so God acts differently in that regard. 
God's not being soft on sin like he uh, was in the Old Testament. He just poured out all of his wrath on Jesus. We have to understand the new covenant. We have to understand the relationship with God. And, and we got to understand that prerequisite to understanding the God of the Old Testament. Because I understand that when I read the Old Testament, I see things differently. God does protect his people. God does protect his people, even in the New Testament. We have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, you know, and a lot of us shy away from that story. And we, we have different opinions of, of, of sometimes what, and the church of, of, the, of how that took place. But God does protect his people. Uh, you know, he just, uh, uh, God does protect his anointed one. But God has not called us to go pick up a sword and kill, like uh, uh, Andrew was talking about with a Joshua. He's not telling us to go pick up our swords and necessarily kill all the people, all the women and children, too. Uh, when they entered the promised land, that's what they did. They, they killed not just the men, but the women and the children. And uh, that was the direction God gave them. But they're under a different covenant. We're not. And, uh, and so we have to understand some of these things as we're reading Scripture. Um, anyway, we're going to get to more of the nature of God in just a second, because that's really what we're talking about. Uh, do you want to add anything? And we, we also, I, I get some of you might be rolling our eyes that Dave and I always bring it back to having a relationship with God. But one thing we need to understand about Elijah and the different ones in the Old Testament is they did have a relationship with God. They didn't have the written word because that was in the Old Testament. And again, we need to understand some of these background things so that we can understand the word of God. But when you have a relationship with the Lord and you trust him and you have that fear of God that Dave was talking about, you can do mighty things in the name of God when you are trusting God and his word and who he is. Again, Dave talked about the different covenants. Israel had different covenants in the Old Testament before Jesus came that God had to honor because the people said, yes, we will, we will do it, God. We will do this covenant with you because, well, it's too short of a, a time in this Bible study to ex explain it in detail. But in the new covenant, when Jesus came, he brought the new covenant that, was, that he accomplished at the cross to give to us. And in the new covenant... He gives us new commandments. And the new commandments are uh, in 1 John it, verses 22 and 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. If we're walking around like the prophet Elijah and bringing fire on people, that's not loving on people. So that's, that's just Sherry's two cents on how we can reconcile being a prophet of God and calling fire and condemnation down on people when we're in the new covenant. I know there's more to expand on that, but I want to get back to the Bible study and not go off on rabbit trails, but just something to think about. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Sherry. So again, we're, t we're talking about the nature of God. We're just getting started here. We're also, the title of this chapter is, again, help me, Sherry, uh, with his word, is God schizophrenic? <laughs> you know, does he have two two personalities? Because it seems like 
the God in the Old, there's a personality of God in the Old Testament and there's a personality of God in the New Testament. So it's almost acting, and unless you understand things, you, you're gonna, you can come away with thinking that God has two personalities. And God doesn't have two personalities. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. Uh, but so we're, we're going to look down a little bit at the New Testament, and then we're going to hopefully reconcile them some of these things. So let's read some more, Sherry, the New Testament grace. Now let's compare this story of Elijah with one in Luke. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and set messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Luke 9, 51 through 53. It had been commanded by God that Jerusalem was to be the center of worship for the Jews. 2 Chronicles 6, 6. That's where he put his temple and where the Ark of the Covenant was located. God had commanded his people to worship him only in Jerusalem. There was a time when the children of Israel rebelled against God and he allowed the northern ten tribes to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians. The two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, remained undisturbed in the land because they had maintained worship in Jerusalem. After the northern tribes were taken captive, the king of Assyria sent colonists from Assyria to inhabit the land of the northern ten tribes so the fields wouldn't go to waste. These colonists intermarried with the remnant of the ten tribes who had remained behind. This remnant forsook their identity as Jews and intermarried with the Assyrian pagans in direct disobedience to God's commandment not to marry people who did not worship him. Because the Assyrians didn't know the ways of God, the beast of the field began to multiply. The Bible says in 2 Kings 17 that God sent lions amongst them. The people were being killed and devoured. The promised land that was a blessing of abundance to the Jews had begun to produce beasts that were devouring the Assyrians. Word of this situation was sent to the king in Assyria. He released some of the Israelites, Israelite priests to return to the promised land and teach the Assyrians the ways of the God of Israel. If they pleased God, they would not be consumed by the wild animals. The Assyrian colonists began to learn the outward practices to please God, but they didn't change their hearts. They were still pagan worshipers, and they incorporated their pagan practices into the Israelite rituals. They did the necessary things to appease God and get rid of the animals, but it was not pure worship of God. As a result, the northern tribes became a mixed race of people called Samaritans, which led to racial, racial problems in Israel. The devout Jews who were living in Jerusalem hated the Samaritans who had corrupted worship. This is verified in John 4, where Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. There was tremendous hatred involving religious and racial prejudices between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews would have no dealings with the Samaritans at all. By Luke 9, Jesus had already ministered to the Samaritans. He had seen the entire city of Samaria respond to him. They had accepted him as Messiah. But now when he came through their town, they would not receive him because it looked like he was going to Jerusalem to worship with those hypocrites down there. 
The Samaritans rejected Jesus because of his association with the Jews, a rejection based upon religious and racial prejudices. To reject Jesus under those conditions was pretty serious, and his disciples, James and John, had a knee-jerk Old Testament reaction. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command heaven to come down from a heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? Luke 9.54 Certainly, James and John were as justified in wanting to kill the Samaritans for the rejection of Jesus as Elijah was in calling fire down to kill the soldiers who had rejected the God of Israel. 2 Kings 1.10-12 This was a serious rejection of the Lord Jesus, and they were simply imitating Elijah, a great man of God. The two disciples were taking a scriptural example, acting on the word of God, and doing what Elijah had done. Yet how did Jesus respond to his loyal, zealous disciples? But he turned and rebuked them, and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Luke 9, 55 and 56. Jesus rebuked James and John for trying to do what was done under the Old Testament. He rebuked them for trying to be like Elijah, one of the most powerful men of God who ever lived under the Old Testament. Does that mean Elijah was sinning in 2 Kings 1? No, because at that time, God was dealing with man differently in the only way he could at that time. Okay, thank you, Sherry. Now, we're going to get into the next section that's going to harmonize everything that we've been talking about. Right now, we're, we're talking a little bit about the Old Testament, and then we just read about a situation where in the New Testament, his own disciples were going to imitate what Elijah just did in, in the book of Kings. And, and they were just trying to follow. Elijah was considered a, a great man of God. He called fire down from heaven. And so they were just going to imitate the same thing under Jesus' uh, direction. And yet they were rebuked for, for wanting to do so. And Jesus makes a very powerful statement here in Luke 9, 55, 56. It says, But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. We need to know what spirit man we are. And that's, you know, that's what we're going to find out when we understand the true nature of God. We're going to get there. We're not, we're not there yet uh, in our study. But when we get to know who God is, we're going to know who we are. We're going to know what spirit we are. And God operated differently in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we're going to harmonize this in just a minute. Uh, that's, that's, uh, I'm going a little faster because there's not a lot of comment on, on at this point right now. We're just setting the stage for this last section that we're going to get to in this first chapter. And again, this is just the first chapter. we got the rest of the book to harmonize everything we're trying to say. But, uh, um, but, but one thing we can't see, that God acted differently in the Old Testament than he does in the New. It seemed to be praised that Elijah called down fire from heaven in the Old Testament, but Jesus rebuked his own disciples for wanting to do the exact same thing in the New Testament. And that, and that just seems out of balance for some people. They think that he, they think, and the title of the chapter is, is God Schizophrenic? And I'm getting better at the word, but a God doesn't have two personalities. But then why does he act one way in the Old, and it seems to be praise, and he acts a different way in the New Testament, and it seems to be rebuked, doing the almost exact same thing. And so that's one thing we're going to get into here in, uh, in this last section. 
uh, we're going to harmonize how, you know, we've been saying that all along, there's two different covenants and different things, but we're going to get into this in just a minute. Anything you want to say? No, just again, we're not saying that dog, that God has two different personalities. We're in, When Andrew is trying to explain the difference between the Old and New Testament and why we're seeing God act different, but Dave used a word that I thought was very good. God operated differently. And it's not that he has two different natures or he isn't the same in the old and the new. He did have to operate differently because of the different covenants as w one way to explain it in a, in a nutshell. Yeah, so anyway, I think we should read this next section and I think we'll be able to harmonize everything a lot better. So, but we got, sometimes uh, before we can harmonize it, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta rough the feathers a little bit. We gotta, we gotta stir up the dirt to, to find out uh, what we're talking about now, we're gonna bring some harmony to both of these, uh, real quick. So, so the title of the section is called uh, Harmonizing Old and New Testaments. So, <coughs> when people don't look at the whole Word of God, examining the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, they generally get an Old Testament picture of God as a God of wrath, judgment, and punishment. That is a truth about God and those who don't accept the love and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ will one day experience a terrible day of God's judgment. But wrath and judgment are not the essential nature of God. God's nature is not judgment. You can't, you can't find that in the Word of God. He does judge and He is just and holy. But Scripture reveals to us in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. Love is God's real nature. He doesn't just have love or operate in love. God is love. Love is the true character of God. Elijah's actions in obedience to God were not the complete representation of the nature of God. And the Old Testament cannot give us a total revelation of God by itself. We need the New Testament to understand the fullness of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 1 and 14. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how, thou, and how sayest thou then, show us the Father? John 14, 9. Jesus is the walking, living word, and when we see him, we see the Father. So the problem many Christians are facing is that they are seeing God through the Old Testament instead of through Jesus. They misunderstand and are confused about who God really is and the relationship he wants with them because they see him according to to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God had to deal with mankind and sin in a different manner. In the following chapters, we will study the scriptures that tell us that. But when Jesus came, he brought the true revelation of the Father to mankind, and he operated very differently. I personally believe if that Jesus had come to earth in his human form in Old Testament times, he would have rebuked Elijah. Joshua never would have killed every man, woman, and child in those cities in the land of Canaan. 
and Moses would have been rebuked for a lot of things he did. You may be thinking, brother, how can you say such things? I believe it's clear in the word of God that it never was God's desire to, have to deal with mankind so firmly. That never was his real nature and character. But because we haven't known this, we have a mixed impression of God. We haven't seen him in his fullness. Most of us don't really recognize or understand the depth of the love, mercy, and compassion that God has toward us. This mistaken impression of God keeps us at arm's length from him. That's why it is so important to harmonize all of the word of God. Only then can we get a firm understanding of his true nature. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. In verse 3, it says Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and express image of his person. In other words, Jesus is an exact representation of God, his true nature revealed. In the following chapters, we are going to see that the love, mercy, and forgiveness God offers us in the New Testament through Jesus Christ were always available to mankind, even in the Old Testament. But man's response to God's goodness in the Old Testament forced him to deal with mankind more harshly than he desired. As we harmonize the Old and New Testaments, we are going to see clearly God is not schizophrenic. All right, thank you, Sherry. So there's a lot here, and we're going to unpack most of this, a lot of this as we go forward. Uh, there's uh, something that he said right here at the beginning. I lost my train of thought just here for a moment. Um, but when we when we look at the Old and New Testament, we see Old Testament in general, we can see a God of wrath. And the New Testament, we see a God of grace. And we're going to be looking at that. Actually, the very next chapter, uh, it says God's grace in the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at God's grace in the Old Testament, too. It's there. It's there. But as Andrew was saying, too, God had to deal with different people differently. And there's a reason. We're going to get into some of that. But he dealt with people differently because of his response to his goodness. God did not really want to act in, in the way he did in the Old Testament, but we're going to see in this study that he, in one sense, we we forced it. Uh, God's a God of love. He's not a God of wrath. That's his true nature. God is love. Uh, but because man rejected that, man, God had to deal with things in a different manner. And sometimes he had to deal with some things in a different manner because he loved us. We might not understand the fullness of what I just said, but, uh, uh, you know, God loved us so much. But if God was not harsh on sin before Jesus came, man, man would have killed himself. Man would have, mankind would have been destroyed long before Jesus ever came. There are some reasons why God had to be so harsh was because if, if you know, 
Sin without Christ will kill you. I'm not talking about even hell. There is a hell, heaven and there is a hell. But sin will kill you. And man got, there's been times in history where man got so wicked that if man wasn't harsh in bringing in the law and bringing, being harsh on sin, mankind would have been extinct. And there would have been no man on the left on the planet for the Savior to come. And if Jesus had come earlier, uh, earlier on in history, uh, I believe, as Andrew, a lot of things that we see in the Old Testament would have never happened. Why did he wait? There's a lot of reasons for that. For one, one of it, it wasn't, you know, I like, I like how Andrew says it, you know, the Old Testament wasn't complete. It wasn't a full, uh, I want to read that section again. Um, it wasn't a fulfillment. I think it was in the um, first chapter, wasn't it? I think, I think this is it. Um, let me just start reading here, though. God's nature is not judgment. You can't find that, that in, the, in the Word of God. He does judge, and He is just and holy. But Scripture reveals to us in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. Love is not God's real nature. He doesn't just have love or operate in love. God is love. Love is the true nature of God. Elijah's actions and obedience to God were not the complete representation of the nature of God. And the Old Testament cannot give us a total revelation of God by itself. We need the New Testament to understand the fullness of God. And now that might be hard for some of us still to just process and comprehend. And I understand that. And I don't know if I can explain all that in one setting. Uh, it's going to take some time to explain some of that and, and to, to, to unravel some of that. So, you know, it's kind of like a steak. Sometimes we need to cut it up in bite-sized pieces so we can understand that. But the old, you know, there's some verses in Second Corinthians chapter three where Paul talks about how the Old Testament is like a veil. But until Christ came, the veil was removed. And when there's a veil over our eyes, we can't see clearly. Sherry made a comment a little while ago about we have to have the right lens on. When we have the wrong lens on, now I don't wear glasses. I probably should at some points, but you know, it, uh, if you have the wrong lens, sometimes you can't see clearly. But the Old Testament serves as a veil. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, I think it's verse 14, that the, the, the Old Testament blinds us, blinds our minds. Now, again, as long as we don't see that, like how, that sounds like sacrilegious. That sounds like we're coming against the Word of God. It's a blinder. But until Christ has come, until Christ is preached, that veil remains. And there's only one way to remove that veil, and that is to preach Christ. That is to preach Jesus. When you remove the veil, then you can see clearly. You can see the nature of God. You can see, and once you see the, once I see the nature of God and through Jesus in the New Testament, I can go back and I can read the Old Testament and I can see it through the lens of the New Testament of the true nature of God. And, you know, now I love the book of Leviticus. I love some of the law because to me, a lot of that is an allegory of what Jesus did. A lot of the laws, a lot of the rituals, a lot of the, the feasts and, and, and commandments were really 
uh, a representation and an allegorical form of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. It just paints a picture. Jesus used parables. I use a lot of different illustrations to try to, to paint the picture. But it, to me, it just it, the, a lot of the things in the Old Testament, we see all this blood and gory and different things. And all this paints a picture of what Christ accomplished for us at the, at the cross. For, for instance, in Leviticus, chapter, the first five chapters in the book of Leviticus, there are five different offerings that represent that they have the offering. There, there wasn't just one offering. There was multiple offerings. And there were five different offerings. There was a burnt offering. There was a sin offering. There was a, I believe, a peace offering. I can't remember the other two off the top of my head. But I, could, I focus on the sin and burnt offering a lot. Um, but it took five offerings to illustrate what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross. Jesus did such a powerful work that it took five offerings to begin to explain, to begin to illustrate, to begin <coughs> to demonstrate what Jesus accomplished for the cross. Now, again, those are just shadows, but the, Jesus is a real deal. But when I understand what Jesus accomplished at the cross, and I read those Levitical laws, and I see how beautiful of what Jesus did. It wasn't beautiful to kill a lamb and all that gore, but it was beautiful what it represents, Jesus being our substitute, what he gave us, what he did for us. It's so beautiful. You see, it's only through Jesus we can see the fullness. Uh, we can't see the fullness just in the Old Testament. Why? There's a veil. It's blinding us. Now, we don't understand that. See, a veil is, there's a, in one sense, a deception to that. And when you're blinded, you, in some ways, uh, you don't know it. But, and there's only one way. You, you don't remove the veil by debating with one another. You remove the veil by preaching Christ. And when the, the veil is removed, you can see clearly. And uh, we can behold his glory, it says, in the same context, in the, as in a mirror. And we can, begin to be, we can be transformed from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. And uh, I, there's so much I, I'm saying right there in that one verse, and I had to take me another hour just to explain verse 18. You know, 2 Corinthians 3.18 is really the main, one of the main verses God used to really get my attention to kind of change my theology a little bit. And uh, because uh, I wanted to be transformed by the Spirit of God. Well, I needed to see differently. I needed to see clearly. And I'm so glad he did. I don't understand everything, but I understand more than I did before. And now I see why God did some things in the Old Testament. See, God was God does have a wrath side. But he point out, poured out and he poured it had to, he poured out in the Old Testament, but he finally poured out all of his wrath on Jesus and for us. So he's not pouring out his wrath in the same regard. However, there is a day coming. Where those who have not received Jesus as their substitute will experience the wrath of God. There is a hell. But Jesus paid the price for us, <coughs> so we don't have to go to hell. But if we reject the sacrifice, if we reject what the gift of salvation, then there is no gift that remains. We will see the fullness of God's wrath uh, being poured out of us as we go into hell. God does not want that. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him shall not perish. God did not come to condemn the world, but that but the but but the world through him might be saved. Jesus came to save us. He didn't come to destroy us. But if we reject the gift of salvation, then there we will experience the wrath of God. And what we experience the wrath of God 
a hundred times more than the Old Testament ever illustrated. Because we reject Jesus. We reject the sacrifice. And, and in a sense, I don't believe when we go to heaven we're going to be judged for this sin and that sin. I believe we're going to be judged for, what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with my son? What did you do with the gift I gave you? Because we either have, there's only two kinds of people, those who have Christ and those who don't have Christ. Your good works by themselves without Christ will not save you. No one wants to be the best, uh, best sinner in hell. There's only one thing that can save you, and that's Jesus. We need Jesus. Now, when we have Jesus, his grace will teach us to deny God, and it will, it will teach us to clean up our act, and whatnot, and we'll, we'll get into some of that a little bit later. But uh, uh, am I making sense on some of this? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just, uh, I, know we have, I don't know if we've done full justice and harmonizing everything, because we can talk about this. Well, what about this version? What about that verse? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not dealing with all these specifics yet. But when we understand that, that God is a God of love, and when you understand the, the, the fullness of God that's, that's taught us in the New Testament, now we, we can actually go back and, and see some of the wrath of God in the Old Testament and see the love of God, see His grace, see His goodness, see His mercy. Because that's really the nature of God. But he also had to pour out. He's, he's not mad at people. He's mad at sin. That's why Jesus became sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus hated sin so much that he became it. So that he could crucify himself. Be- Jesus became our sin. And then he crucified, him- he crucified himself. He allowed himself to be crucified. They didn't kill him as far as murder. They didn't murder Jesus. Jesus gave himself for us. If Jesus Jesus could have called legions of angels and rescued him from the cross. They didn't murder him. He gave himself willingly. That's beautiful. That's powerful. To, to, To water it down to say that Jesus was murdered is watering down the message. No, Jesus gave himself voluntarily. He gave himself wholeheartedly. Otherwise, the sacrifice would not have been accepted. But Jesus was our substitute. He hated sin so much that he became sin and then was then crucified it and buried it. And he gave us an exchange. He gave us his righteousness. You know, that's what really the sin offering and burn offering represent. <coughs> and I'll kind of end on this note. But the, there was, again, there's five Levitical uh, offerings in the book of Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus chapter 1 deals with the burnt offering, but Leviticus chapter 3, I think it is, it could be 4, but 3, I believe it is, deals with the sin offering. But basically, a man would bring a lamb before the, the priests. And they actually gave a burnt offering twice a day. Every morning and every evening. Twice a day. Every day, twice a day, they have to offer a burnt offering. And this was something they did daily. Not just once a year. We see the the the... the the, the other lamb offered one, uh, uh, once a year. But the burnt offering was done twice every day. But the burnt offering, uh, well, let me deal with the sin offering first. The sin offering, when they got a lamb, and the, the, basically a man would lay their hands on the lamb, and the man's sin exchanged to the lamb, and the lamb was crucified or slaughtered. 
The burnt offering was almost the same in this regard. You would lay your hands on the lamb, but that's why the lamb had to be unblemished. It had to be without spot, without wrinkle. And the, 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 the unblemishedness of the lamb transferred to the man. Now, there's nothing sacred about the lamb. It's just a, Again, it's just a shadow. It's a representation of Jesus, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is the real lamb of God. But these lambs represented that. And so where the, the sin offering took man's sin and it was slaughtered, the, the, the burnt offering represented the righteousness, the unblemishedness of the lamb being exchanged to the man. So they exchange. Jesus took your sin and he gave you his righteousness. It was exchange taking place. It also says about the burnt offering that the burnt offering was a sweet aroma. There was no sweet aroma about the burnt offering, but there was a sweet aroma about the burnt offering. There's no sweet, sweet aroma about your sin being crucified, but there is a sweet aroma about his righteousness being given unto you. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, my favorite verse, for he who knew no sin became sin, our sin offering, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He became our sin and we became the righteousness of God. The exchange took place. So in the Old Testament, God's pouring out his wrath on sin because there's been no exchange yet. And uh, in the New Testament, God's not is pouring, poured out his wrath on Jesus so he wouldn't have to pour out his wrath on us. See, when we understand that, when, when we stand our, understand all that, we can see the love and the nature and the goodness of God in the New Testament. We, we can also see the same principle in the Old Testament. We can see his grace, and we're going to study that uh, more in depth next week. Um, but uh, uh, when we understand the, the covenant, and what I just explained to you is the covenant. The covenant is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the new covenant. And Jesus said, it says in a new covenant in, in Hebrews chapter 8, it says that God remembers your sins no more. So if God doesn't remember your sins no more, why are you? Why is someone else remembering your sins? God says he will remember your sins no more because of what Jesus did. But just because we're born again, and I can get on so many rabbit trails with some of this, you know, but it says in Galatians that if you sow to the flesh, of the flesh you'll reap corruption. Sin is still deadly. Sin is still wrong. Sin is still ugly. Sin will still cost you more than you want to pay, and it, it will always still kill and destroy. But God, and God would always be harsh on sin, and He'll be, and He'll, uh, but God, dude, Christ took your sin. So that he can give you his righteousness. So you can have a right relationship with God. A position right before God. Anyway, uh, I know I'm saying a lot of different things. But uh, God is a God of love. Well, we're going to look at it next week. We're going to see this grace. We're going to see this love even in the Old Testament. But unless you understand some of these things, and I'm barely touching the surface here. But uh, if you don't understand some of these things, you can think that God has two personalities. He's acting one way in the Old Testament. He's acting another way in the New Testament. And we got to harmonize that. Well, how do we harmonize that? Jesus, the cross, the new covenant. That's how we harmonize it. And so that's where we have to start. If we, if we don't, if we, and he used scripture tonight too from Hebrews. And Sherry quoted some, some of this earlier as well. But Jesus is the express image of the Father. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. How do we see Jesus acting? How do we see Jesus behaving? That's how God acts. Did God, Jesus had get angry at times? Yes. But he got angry at religion. 
I mean, he got angry at, at, at the temple, at religion, and different things, the misrepresentation of God, and we'll get into a lot more of that later. But uh, there were times when Jesus got angry. He hated the sin, but loved the sinner. He hated religion. He hated uh, the abuse of, re of religion. A religion can be very abusive. It can be very cruel. Uh, I mean, I know so many people who wanted to, uh, I mean, it just, it's been, it's been, uh, we've seen some people come out of some religious churches that, and I'm not trying to brush everybody with this, but some have just been just so totally cruel. And, uh, and so they wanted nothing to do with God because it was sort of the cruelty of the religion. And uh, I'm, I'm not just talking about other, I'm, I'm talking about Christian religion, some Christian, some other religions that are we, uh, 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 under the name of Christ, they're not, they're not. They're a misrepresentation of the nature of God, and it just it can be very cruel. And so, uh, that, well, we're trying. We have to unravel some of those misconceptions. So I don't know if I'm making sense. I don't want to necessarily end on a negative note. I want to end on a positive note. I I have two quick things to to end with. You know, we, we've talked more than once about this lens to see correctly the Old Testament in, in, through Jesus and the New Testament. But if you've ever seen the movie National Treasure, the, the first one, they, the main characters find these special glasses that supposedly Benjamin Franklin made to read a secret clue. But you had to look through the lens the correct way and you know, move them around so you look through the right lens and you, you saw the answer, you saw the clue. We're, we're trying to explain that through, if you wanna understand the true nature of God and, and understand the Bible, we must, we all must see clearly through the correct lens and that lens is Jesus Christ what he did at the cross for us the, the that new covenant that he established that's that correct lens to see god clearly out of you know in the in, if you read the example of moses and the israelites the children of israel were in slavery they were in bondage they were crying out to god and god heard them and he delivered them and he brought them out of egypt out of that bondage and the people celebrated, hooray, you know, God took care of us. He, he brought us out of that bondage. He not only took, did that, but he got rid of Israel, uh, of Pharaoh's army. And they celebrated, they sang songs, they glorified God. And then almost the next breath, they complained and cried, God, why did you bring us out into the desert to, to kill us? They, they did not get that God had if God could take them out of bondage, they would continue to save this people. But they they looked at, through the wrong lens at what God did. They only saw the the hardship of traveling through the, the desert. And and Moses, he continued to trust God. He even went up on the mountain to talk to God and and uh, have that relationship with God. But when he came down the mountain. Part of the misunderstanding that the people had about God and, and not realizing his true nature, they got so afraid of the glory that shone on Moses after being in God's presence that instead of saying, oh, you know, teach us about God, what did God say, reveal to us, you know, who this God is that brought us out, instead they were like, 
put a veil on Moses. We don't want to see it. God is horrible. God is mean. You know, if, if God tells us to do something, we'll do it. But don't, don't, you know, don't come. God's scary. They're mis they had a misperception of who God is. They didn't take the time to have that relationship with him. They, they, they saw through that wrong lens. And th that's a whole can of worms I just opened. But I'm trying to use them as an example of how easily we all could have the wrong perception of God by looking through the law the wrong lens if we see through Jesus that correct lens of Jesus and what God did through Jesus for us we will see the true nature of God we will see his love and mercy and compassion that are new every morning we will see how much God loves us and what he wants to do for us and through us and um, your life will never be the same in a good way. Jesus came that we would have life and life more abundant. That's what, just this beginning of the book, we're trying to, to, to just open the door for, for everyone to, to see this true nature, but we've, we've only just barely opened it. So, so hang tight with us and, and we'll reveal some more next week. Well, we're out of time for tonight. We went a little over, but we got a little bit late to start. So we're going to be, we'll, we'll join next week at 7 o'clock. I'm sorry, Wednesday at 7 o'clock. We'll be doing the new year in the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and so uh, what we're going to be doing, we're still trying to get this live streamed out out. If we can't get it out in the way we will, we're going to do it the old way we've done before and just go to Facebook and then we'll upload all the other platforms later. So anyway, uh, anyway. Uh, let me just press out, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, all of us, even if those of us who have been walking with you for a number of years, teach us afresh the true nature of God so we can experience you in your fullness. Lord, bless us as we go. Bless this week in the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name we give you thanks. Amen. Well, have a good week. We, uh, we love you, and we'll talk to you soon. All right, bye-bye.